when I attempt to present it in the U.S., especially in to our um, government, whether it's the Congress or uh, the White House, basically there's no interest. I mean, the response is something like, you got to be kidding. You know, we do not, we are not interested in uh, a bureaucracy. We know what the problem is and we want the Chinese to be uh, more responsive uh, to uh, our perspective. I definitely feel that we play just as an important a role in China in leading to this dysfunctional relationship, and it's our obligation to uh, really commit to a, a different approach to managing the relationship. And you know, if you don't like the secretary, give me a better idea. I'm happy. I'm happy to listen to it. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, thanks, Niels, and welcome, everyone. So Henry Kissinger, the U.S. Secretary of State, who initiated the modern relationship between China in the U.S. in the early 1970s, now says the two countries are at the foothills of a new Cold War. And as we follow the news every day, it really does feel like we're climbing higher and higher um, in those hills. Um, but today we're going to talk about how and why the two countries got to that point, and more importantly, outline a path for walking back down, away from conflict toward a more stable, interdependent relationship. And the guest who's going to take us through that path is Stephen Roach. Um, his commentary and analysis have helped shape policy debates in both Beijing and Washington for many years. He spent 30 years at Morgan Stanley, where he was the chief economist. And for those of us in the markets, uh, a must-read um, about Asia. Um, he then went on to become the chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and since 2010 has been at Yale, where he's currently a senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center. He's written three books all about Asia, and he's here to talk about his most recent one called Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. So Stephen Roach, um, it's a real honor to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us and, uh, and welcome. Well, it's great to be with you, Kevin. Um, so at the end of your book, you describe yourself as a recovering Wall Street forecaster. So it's been a, over a decade. Are you, uh, are you fully recovered now? Well, I don't think anyone ever fully recovers from uh, anything. But, you know, the, the Wall Street experience was, um, uh, was challenging. It was enriching. Uh, it gave me the opportunity to um, travel and see, um, you know, many important countries, their policymakers uh, get familiar with their institutions. So I wouldn't give that up for anything, but I'm glad to be out of that and uh, now taking a more um, uh, academic perspective on many of the issues that whetted my curiosity, but I could only touch briefly when I was in the Wall Street world. Yeah, you're, um, the title of your book um, you know, says that, that you know, the story really is, is about narratives. And, and I thought maybe 
we could start with a little bit of your own personal story. Um, you visited China many, many times. You've spoken at conferences. You've talked with policymakers. Can you can you walk us through a little bit of your own kind of personal history with with the country? Sure. I had um, I first went to China in the early 1990s, uh, but and these were uh, infrequent and brief, uh, sporadic uh, trips. Uh, my uh, appetite was whetted, though, in the late 1990s in the depths of the um, Asian financial crisis when I was heading up Morgan Stanley's highly regarded global economics team who um, basically didn't have a clue as to how the Asian crisis was unfolding. And so I had a hunch, only a hunch, that China would hold the key to the end game of what many were calling you know, the first crisis of modern globalization. So I started going there in late 97 quite frequently, in fact, every other month. And, uh, you know, it just took off. It, it quickly became evident to me that China was not going to go the way of, you know, Thailand, Indonesia, South Korea, and, and others that were falling like dominoes that it had uh, the wherewithal, the strategy, and most of all, the determination to avoid um, currency devaluations and resist uh, the, the capital flight uh, that was taking down other countries. And I started uh, writing about it, and um, my research was picked up uh, by some senior Chinese policymakers. I was invited uh, to a number of important international conferences in China, became a trusted uh, confidant uh, of, the, uh, of the Chinese leadership for reasons that you know, still escape me, but in any case, um, really had tremendous access uh, and still do. I was just in China last week for the first time since COVID. And while China is very different than it was 25 years ago in the depths of the Asian crisis, uh, it's still a fascinating uh, uh, place to go. The arguments in the book hinge on, you know, the distinction between true and false narratives. And, um, you know, you say right now the two countries are trapped in kind of dueling false narratives about each other. And I, I, I want to talk about, I'm going to spend most of the time kind of, kind of outlining those narratives. But um, be before we get to that, there's a, there's a fascinating little bit in the book where you kind of introduce the, this concept and you talk about why false narratives are so prevalent just in human society. And you, you kind of reference this MIT study um, that compared kind of the how both true and false stories spread. And I was wondering maybe if you could just kind of um, summarize that for us, because it seems like pretty important for us to just appreciate why false rumors play such an important role in kind of relationships. Well, thanks, Kevin. I think that's such an important point um, to um, really unpack the, the the key points I'm trying to make in this book. Um, my view that I try to develop and defend is that these false narratives don't just arise in a vacuum of, um, you know, nations and their leaders trying to fabricate stories about adversaries, but they really stem from a deep-seated vulnerability that each nation is unwilling to accept. And, um, you know, in the case of the U.S., we're not, you know, we, we're, we're a, certainly a, a superpower global hegemon, but our economic foundations are not as strong as we'd like to believe. Um, and I go through that in the book. Um, our political uh, stability is being drawn into question uh, daily, and especially today uh, on the uh, the day of the indictment of a former president. And our social stability reflects a worrisome and potentially dangerous polarization. So we're vulnerable, and we don't want to face up to it. And the way our political system works is when you don't want to face up your own vulnerabilities, you tend to blame someone else outside of your system for that. And 
China's our big adversary. China's our biggest uh, trading partner. China uh, holds the biggest questions with respect to our own economic prosperity. Uh, and um, you know, China's clearly flirted with uh, some transgressions in the areas of uh, technology, trade secrets, human rights that make us very uncomfortable. And so China is our favorite scapegoat. But, uh, and I would just add, this is not a dissimilar uh, sort of blame game from that which we relied on 30 years ago when we blamed Japan uh, for many of our at least economic problems at the time. So, you know, we're good at blame. You know, the Chinese suffer from a, a similar uh, affliction. You know, they, you know, are sort of celebrating uh, their strength, uh, the rejuvenation in Xi Jinping's uh, terms, their aspirations uh, to become a great modern socialist nation by 2049, which would be the 100th year of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And for Xi Jinping, the promise that he has made to the Chinese people uh, and to the party really hinges on being able to deliver a growth and development trajectory that justifies uh, those claims of rejuvenation and great power status. Yet the Chinese economy is surprisingly vulnerable as well. It's unbalanced, uh, in the words of a former premier, uh, now nearly, um, uh, I say 15 years ago, Wen Jiabao, who claimed that the Chinese economy correctly was unbalanced unstable, uncoordinated, uh, and unsustainable. And China has yet to fully uh, address uh, those concerns. So a vulnerable China turns out to blame an adversary that it now views, in Xi Jinping's words just a few weeks ago, to the National People's Congress um, as a United States that is intent on suppression, containment, and all-around encirclement of uh, uh, China's um, uh, system to say nothing of its development uh, objective. So the blame uh, is two-way, and I develop that in going through the false narratives uh, that in most cases are fact-based, but they draw the wrong conclusions on both sides of this conflict. Let's um, let's talk about that um, the false narratives. Go into maybe a, a little bit more detail, so we can kind of get some kind of more granular context on how we reach this point. So, from the U.S. perspective, you know, you t you talk about a couple false narratives. Um, the first one is what you call the bilateral blunder, which is essentially, you know, just looking at the U.S. Um, trade performance. Um, on a U.S.-China basis and not looking at it on a more multilateral basis, getting a more kind of complete picture of what's going on. Can you explain what you what you mean by that in a little more detail? Yeah, that's the, if you had to ask me for my favorite false narrative on, on the U.S. side, that would be it. I actually, the, the chapter that goes through it is called Bilateral Bluster, but Bluster. Blunder, <laughs> blunder is fine. Um, <laughs> they sort of mean the same thing. And what I argue uh, in that chapter is, yes, America has a large trade deficit that uh, inflicts some um, hardship and pain on American workers, their companies, and the communities in which they uh, reside. But um, this deficit is very much an outgrowth of a shortfall in domestic savings. When countries have low saving rates and they want to grow, they have to import surplus savings from abroad and run massive balance of payments uh, uh, deficits with the world. Uh, and those balance of payments deficits give rise to multilateral uh, 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 trade deficits with many countries. In 2022, for example, the United States had trade deficits with 106 countries. Yes, China is the largest piece of our 106-country multilateral trade deficit, but that still leaves 105 others by um, 
and hardly unsophisticated math. And um, if you put tariffs on China, as the Trump administration did, and as the Biden administration continues uh, to uh, levy, uh, all you do, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You uh, shrink the Chinese piece of our multilateral trade deficit, but that gets diverted because our savings is still under pressure to other countries. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened over the last several years. The Chinese piece has come down, but our trade deficits with countries like you know Vietnam, um, Malaysia, uh, Taiwan, Japan, Germany, Mexico, Canada have all increased, and our overall trade deficit has gotten larger. In fact, hit a new rec uh, record last year, and so. The false narrative that I stress in this chapter is that, uh, yes, America has a big trade deficit, but we cannot pin it on China. It reflects largely our shortfall of domestic saving, which is pretty much uh, an own goal uh, in the realm of um, economic reality. Um, I mean, you also make the point later in the book that um, while the savings narrative is, uh, you know, the false false narrative, well, I guess the savings narrative is true. The U.S. has a savings deficit. Uh, blaming it on the, you know, on China is is the false narrative. That that's also going to be a challenging one to kind of promote politically, and we can talk about some of the ways you you move around that. You also, you know, that's a that's a clear false narrative that that you talk about. You have some other ones that are interesting. One is this notion that, well, yeah, we're we're in a cold war with China, but we can win it. You know, we already won one, um, and that you know, over the long term, our economic strength, our you know, um, open democracy is is going to win out, and. You're skeptical of that argument, and you're saying, "Yeah, you did win the first Cold War, but you were in a much stronger position economically going into it, and the system that you were, if you will, facing off against was very different economically, far less sustainable than than what what you have in China." So, um, can you elaborate a little bit on that, on why you worry that that's a kind of a dangerous narrative? Well, it's it's very important. I mean. Um... You started out uh, in introducing uh, our talk today um, with the, the Henry Kissinger quote of that we're in the foothills of a new Cold War. Uh, he actually said that. He did say that. But he, he said it now nearly four years ago. I think it was in 2019. He would be the first to admit that we're, we've climbed well above the foothills. In fact, this is a you know, a, a legitimate Cold War. It's a different Cold War. There are no two are alike. We've only had two of them, so it's, it's you know, difficult to sort of make the same uh, precise comparisons. But the one I make in the book is that the first Cold War against the former Soviet Union occurred in a period of great uh, economic prosperity uh, in the United States. We were sort of in the sweet spot of our post-World War II revival during this um, 1947 to 1991 uh, period when we fought and ultimately defeated uh, the former Soviet Union. And the comparison that I make this time is that our economy is a good deal weaker, if it's true if you look at the numbers on GDP growth, productivity growth, uh, domestic saving, which is a key aspect of the comparative metrics I use, uh, the trade deficit, the balance of payments deficit. And I document this in the book. Um, you know, we're basically running at a sharply reduced pace in terms of productivity and GDP compared to that earlier period in our um, imbalances in terms of savings and trade in the current account are far more severe. 
But um, the adversary is different. The Soviet Union was a small economy. Uh, it was a peer competitor in terms of uh, weapons uh, technology, but it was a very, very small uh, economy compared to the behemoth that we now encounter uh, in uh, China. And at the end of the first Cold War, the Soviet Union was collapsing. Uh, and so many Cold War scholars uh, conclude correctly, in my view, that the decisive battle of the first Cold War uh, reflected sort of the economic victory of a very strong U.S. economy over a smaller and collapsing uh, uh, Soviet economy. China's got problems, and we can talk about that if you want. I've written about it recently, but uh, they're a much, much larger economy. By some measures, they're actually on a par, if not slightly greater than the U.S., but the conventional wisdom has is that they're on a path of convergence that will equal the U.S. in dollar terms at some point in the next uh, decade. Uh, and um, uh, they're you know, enormously powerful in terms of their weapons technology, as the Soviet Union was uh, back then, but they're larger, stronger, and a far more formidable adversary against the uh, United States that lacks that, uh, at least to the extent that we had it in the first Cold War. So I think it's, you know, a little bit worrisome, smug, uh, potentially arrogant that we presume that just because we won uh, the first Cold War, that the verdict will be the same this time around. You, you have, there's a, I guess I'm kind of an economics nerd, so there's a number of questions that came up in the book that probably take us a little bit off piece, um, but I'll, I'll indulge myself. One of them is, I, I think it's related to the kind of um, savings um, problem you talk about, and also the winnable Cold War false narrative that, you know, in the first Cold War, the U.S., um, for a lot of that period, the federal government was investing heavily in basic uh, research and development. And that that just kind of gradually went down um, over time to the point where, you know, it fallen to, I think she said 25% of, um, of federal funding for R&D, where it had been over 70%. Uh, and it continued to decline. And what's interesting um, is that that decline in U.S. kind of federal support for basic R&D coincided with the fall in the savings rate. Um, and, you know, I, I suspect there's some relationship there. But what I'm interested in is your opinion in some of the, you know, the new policies that Biden administration has introduced, which seem to be moving you know, in the uh, kind of back in the kind of older direction of getting the U.S. government more involved in basic research. I, I don't know if you agree with that um, assessment, if you think that's a, a positive step that might do something over the longer term to address the savings deficit. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Kevin. And some of the developments that you're alluding to, of course, have occurred um, after the, the book was written, in fact, published, especially what the recent enactment of the, the Chips and Sciences Act of um, uh, late last year, which seems to be what you are alluding to. And, you know, I write about the technology piece because it's become so critical to America's uh, anti-China narratives right now, especially the full um, throttled attack on uh, Huawei, uh, you know, China's leading technology company and the one that uh, we've targeted as, um, you know, a threat uh, to uh, national security through the alleged um, uh, potential uh, to install 5G infrastructure and telecommunications infrastructure in the United States with a, quote, backdoor, unquote, that could unleash um, uh, sort of Chinese uh, espionage activities um, uh, into our domestic society and um, uh, defense. I make the admittedly controversial point that, you know, our, our fear of Huawei 
it could well be a false narrative in the sense that it deflects our focus away from the question you just raised on our own ability to invest uh, in the building blocks of um, the technological prowess through research and development, especially the basic research uh, piece of um, R&D, as well as our failure to really invest in uh, STEM-based um, uh, higher education, science, technology, engineering, and math. The, the basic research piece of R&D really grew dramatically post the so-called Sputnik crisis and um, uh, was critical in building our technological prowess uh, in sending men to the moon that we're now trying to do again. And then it has receded sharply uh, in recent years. Whether or not it's a direct outgrowth of the saving shortfall, um, it's hard to pin that down. But I, I think that there's more than just coincidence behind those uh, two similar trends. You know, the Biden administration, to its credit, is focused on uh, addressing uh, some of these technology issues. And on the surface, you know, the industrial policy actions that were taken uh, last year, uh, the Chips and Science Act being one, the Inflation Reduction Act being another, are aimed at addressing that shortfall. But, you know, if you look under the hood of the Chips and Sciences Act, especially the $52 billion piece that is aimed at supporting uh, the revival of the domestic semiconductor industry, uh, the numbers show that about 81% of that uh, total of $52 billion goes to bricks and mortar construction uh, of uh, new domestic fabs, as they're called, and only 19% goes to uh, R&D. So, you know, whether or not we really come to grips with this profound shortfall of the basic scientific research that goes into future R&D is still an open question. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that worries me. And our fixation on Huawei as the enemy um, may well be a cover-up for our unwillingness to really do uh, the heavy lifting on, uh, on R&D that we really need to to maintain our leadership uh, technologically. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I had uh, Chris Miller on the show who uh, wrote Chip War about the, you know, semiconductor industry. And, you know, he talks about various, um, you know, various companies and, you know, whether or not they were involved in, you know, kind of IP stealing or forced IP transfer. And he says kind of, you know, that there, there are some very clear cases of that. But ironically, Huawei was sort of the company that in a lot of ways did things <laughs> that I don't know if the right way, but, uh, you know, they invested heavily in R and D they invested heavily, um, you know, with kind of U S expertise in management practices. They did, they did a lot to become a very efficient producer and move up the value chain and whether or not that, you know, it makes sense to have them, um, embedded in our telecoms infrastructure is, is, um, is an open question, but he said it's just a little bit ironic that uh, they're kind of one company that, you know, kind of followed a, a similar path to say what some of the Korean and Japanese firms had done um, well, the, as they developed. Well, to that point, which I agree with, is that um, where is the U.S. on 5G infrastructure? We have, there's not one uh, domestic tele telecom company that has a meaningful market share that can provide us with a telecom infrastructure that we need uh, to uh, to upgrade our own system. I mean, there are uh, alternatives apart from Huawei, but, you know, they're Nokia and Ericsson. They're not U.S. domiciled companies. We have dropped the edge in uh, really um, uh, being able to maintain our presence in these critical telecommunication uh, platform uh, industries. Okay, well, let's. Um, so we've got the, in the U.S. We've got 
the false narratives of um, you know this kind of bilateral blunder or bluster, um, either one, both of them, um, and then also you know this notion that well a, a cold war is winnable, and as you point out, that that might not be <laughs> correct. It's highly unlikely to be uh, to play out the way it did before. Um, but China also has their own false narrative. So let, let's talk about that so we can kind of understand a little bit better how we got to this point of conflict. Um, you know, one thing that that kept popping into my mind, and, you know, you're very explicit about this in the book, um, is, you know, can a country like China come to terms with false narratives, given that it's a kind of a society that's increasingly driven by mistrust um can you know can a i guess a surveillance state ever admit that there's false narratives um so maybe if we could start with that kind of high level question then we'll talk about some of the specific false narratives that that you think china's engaged in yeah i i definitely feel that you know this is not just a a, uh, an inclination on the U.S. side, but one that's equally shared by the Chinese side. And I start this my Chinese portion of the the false narratives uh, in the book off with a chapter on censorship, and um, you know make the point that um, you know in a system where the state controls uh, the story and the dissemination of uh, information and curates the facts that are available uh, to, um, to to the people as well as to uh, companies and other decision makers that truth can be an especially elusive uh, construct if it's you know, sort of imposed uh, from a propaganda uh, ministry. And so, um, you know, that that's a uh, a critical issue in preventing uh, the internal discourse of a heavily censored Chinese society from facing up to misstatements and uh, false narratives. I I make a related point in that same chapter, and I admit this is um, hugely controversial, um, and I've been accused of a false equivalency here, but I'll say it anyway, that you know, the U.S. does not have a state-directed system of censorship, but we have polarized information distortion where a large portion of our society, you know, believes in conspiracy theories put out by, you know, one political party or another uh, that have very destructive impacts on the way in which our nation attempts to move forward. And, you know, look no further than the, the big lie of the 2020 presidential election, which is playing out real time uh, today as we speak, where, um, again, the state doesn't censor the debate, but um, the political polarization amplified by um, the social media uh, really um, has a comparable uh, disturbing impact uh, on um, masking the public uh, from the truth. So um, both nations, China more so, I would say, in this regard, really uh, suffer heavily from the the way in which they selectively utilize, filter, and distort information uh, to prevent uh, the key actors in, in both systems from facing up to uh, the difference between a true and a false narrative. Is that a point that you're able to talk with your contacts in China about, or is that you know just a, an area that you avoid? I don't avoid it. I was just in China last week, and um, I will I will raise this not as a you know as a uh, an issue to threaten their their core values, but just to point out that um, uh, it, you know we're we're in the midst of this. Uh, very worrisome conflict. And wouldn't it be better to be able to resolve the conflict if we could both speak more freely uh, than we could about these issues? Uh, and in a heavily censored society, uh, that's difficult for the Chinese to do. And um, 
You know, I, I don't get much pushback from that. I really don't, Kevin. I think they, the Chinese take uh, state-directed censorship as a given. They don't deny it. But, um, you know, they're in, in large part uh, unwilling, at least in the official circles, of course, to challenge the, uh, the narrative as it is defended and uh, projected by the state propaganda department. Um, let's okay. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the specific false narratives. Um, you start off talking about this. Um, I guess the rebalancing to a more consumer-led economy, and that's a story that's been out there for for many many years. The notion that China overinvests and it needs to and will be able to kind of gradually shift to a more um, consumer-based society, and that's quite important because that's the sort of flip side of the U.S. savings deficit is kind of um, a degree of excess savings in China. So if China had less excess savings, then um, there'd be potentially less pressure on the U.S. to um, to run such a big deficit. Um, and you say that's a false narrative because the, um, the policies aren't in place to allow um, Chinese consumers to save less, that there's a lot of precautionary savings going on that won't be reduced unless there's some meaningful change in kind of the structure of the provision of retirement and health insurance. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that touches on my favorite false narrative, which is again, playing at real time right now in the U S China debate. And, and let me just, you know, I get to this question, but let me just give you a brief preamble. About three weeks ago, um, at the uh, National People's Congress uh, in Beijing, Xi Jinping just came out um, sort of and said what he had been hinting at for years, and that is that the United States, and he named us, uh, as is the adversary of China uh, because it is in, in engaged in what he called uh, all-around encirclement, containment, uh, and suppression of Chinese development. And this is an example of a classic false narrative. Yes, the U.S. now has come clean in embracing a strategy of containment. But uh, China's uh, uh, inability to sustain economic development because of its failure uh, to put in place the policies uh, to support consumer-led growth, that's its own problem. That has nothing to do with the United States. So this, to me, qualifies as a classic false narrative, uh, one that's grounded uh, in uh, you know, the facts of America's containment strategy, but then is projected cause and effect to drive uh, an outcome in the Chinese economy that is very much an outgrowth of China's own uh, inabilities to uh, support the model. I participated last week in a big... Um, conference called the China Development Forum, uh, which uh, I participated in basically every year since uh, 2001. And I spoke uh, in several sessions, but the, uh, the first or maybe the second panel I spoke on was the need to stimulate domestic demand or uh, consumer demand. And I pointed out when I was addressing uh, the conference last week that of the 20-some-odd China Development Forums I participated in, I think this is the eighth time I have presented in a panel called Stimulating Domestic Demand. So, you know, they know they have to do it, but they just can't do it. Uh, and I pointed that out very clearly to them, and there was some nervous laughter, uh, you know, from the, the Chinese audience. And the point I've made is very simple. Um, you know, they they generate a lot of Spendable, spendable labor income by creating jobs uh, in an embryonic but growing services sector. They raise uh, real wages a lot by encouraging uh, migration from the, the countryside to the cities where rate, wage rates are more than double what they are in rural areas. But the labor income uh, is not spent uh, because of this deep-rooted sense of financial insecurity that is traceable to the lack of a well-developed, uh, well-funded social safety net. Um, 
retirement, and health care. And that's particularly problematic for a rapidly aging uh, Chinese society. So the income comes in uh, and it goes to provide for safety net needs for the future and does not drive uh, the consumer-led dynamic. I have said this literally for 15 years in China. Uh, and they all say, you know, it's those are very important points. Thank you. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but, you know, that um, that a, a communist country has a problem with providing a social safety net relative to the U.S., which is always considered to have quite a, a weak social safety net. Um, it's interesting your point about containment. We had uh, Susan Shirk on the show and um, she was talking about her recent book, Overreach, and she said that, you know, historically China's greatest fear has been containment by the West, um, yet its policy actions, particularly she, she's pointing out the wolf warrior, aggressive um, foreign policy stance, has created exactly the situation it fears the most. Um, I don't know if you agree with that perspective or not. It sounds like you're you have a similar mind. Well, you know, again, cause and effect is tricky here. I mean, certainly I, I take the point that containment is a big fear, especially uh, given the historical context uh, that Xi Jinping has stressed from, um, you know, the onset of his leadership sort of grounding uh, Chinese aspirations uh, in this sort of rejuvenation perspective, uh, compensating for a century of humil humiliation, they can be dated back to the um, uh, first of the Opium Wars in, in the mid uh, 19th century, where the Western uh, and foreign countries, in particular, uh, invaded and occupied parts of China, and uh, containment was. Um, you know, a legacy of that, you know, that's only part of the story. I mean, China, uh, you know, it had a, some problems of its own with the internal decay of the late uh, Qing dynasty that have less to do with external containment and more to do with internal instability. But that's a, that's a, an important, but, but, uh, a, a detail at this, uh, uh, point. But, where does the containment come from this time? Is it, is it one that the wolf warriors are exacerbating? Or did it begin with, you know, the Obama pivot uh, of, um, you know, a post, uh, you know, Middle East uh, geopolitical strategy in the U.S. that was uh, designed to return uh, to the Asian theater and address the, you know, the threat, the concerns of a rising China? Uh, the, uh, a pivot that featured as its first major initiative, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a very ambitious pan-regional uh, trade accord that you know included um, the, all the major nations of, uh, of Asia, with a notable and important exception uh, of China. How much of a role did that play uh, in um, you know eliciting the response? of the wolf warriors. And, um, you know, it goes on and on, you know, the, the so-called AUKUS uh, submarine deal between uh, Australia, the UK, uh, and the United States aimed at um, uh, creating a, a counterweight to China's a very powerful and now large, the largest naval force in the world. So, you know, it's the wolf warriors have not made things any better. You're entirely right about that. But, um, you know, the, the, the counter to that is that they are reacting, responding uh, to containment pressures that are emanating from the United States. And, you know, you, you talk to uh, Chris Miller, um, you know, the, the latest and very significant chapter uh, comes from containment focused on advanced semiconductors, which goes to the heart of China's uh, uh, aspirations for indigenous innovation. So, you know, this is a, you know, a, a two-way phenomena that, you know, again, sort of fits, I think, my structure of uh, dueling false narratives. 
Yeah, and I, I I completely agree, and I certainly wouldn't want to oversimplify her quite you know detailed and nuanced view of the relationship. But I I thought that was kind of a, a broadly speaking an interesting point about you know in the end their greatest fear is is being realized. Um, but you're right, it's, it's a kind of a complex and uh, interactive set of relationships. Let's move on to conflict resolution. Let's move on to the last couple chapters of your book where you talk about potential ways forward. Um, you, um, you know, you say that, look, any conflict resolution has to be goal-oriented, has to start with rebuilding trust and ultimately move to codifying fair and sustainable and forcible rules. And you make a couple suggestions. Um, one is a bilateral investment treaty between the two countries to kind of um, uh, ideally create a framework for, um, for for setting those rules. And then you also talk about creating a what you call a permanent secretariat, which would replace kind of periodic meetings with kind of a permanent standing group of, um, you know, Chinese and American policymakers, but also academics, researchers, et cetera, to, to manage the relationship. So let's talk first about your notion of a bilateral investment treaty. Um, what is a bilateral investment treaty? Why do you think that potentially, I know there's political reasons that might not be um, exercisable at the moment, but what, what do you think that's a potential starting point for repairing the relationship? Well, can I, I just back up a second to um, make the point that my book is, is tries to be um, balanced in assessing the U.S.-China conflict from a relationship perspective, contrary to what uh, we read in this country that America has a China problem, and contrary to what I heard, you know, last week in China that China has an America problem. Uh, I believe strongly that we both collectively have a relationship problem, where we've allowed this relationship uh, to become uh, destabilized and in desperate need of repair. So the framework of resolution that I end the book on, and I didn't want to end the book with just on you know another you know warning of um, mounting conflict and um, you know the Cold War that could turn hot, but I wanted to uh, really uh, offer what I hope are some constructive suggestions on the off ramps here. The, the framework of resolution has to be a relationship framework that both countries jointly uh, endorse rather than one imposing it on the other uh, as, um, you know, a U.S. Congress seems inclined to want to do uh, right now. So, um, you know, trust is, you know, obviously the most important thing. Uh, there's very little trust, so that certainly needs to be dealt with right off the bat. And, you know, you can't just push a button and reestablish trust. Take little steps first, like reopening um, closed consulates in both countries, um, relaxing visa requirements, uh, restarting foreign exchange, uh, student foreign exchange uh, programs, relaxing um, constraints on the operations of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and then big, much tougher issues like climate change, uh, global health, and cyber. Assuming we can make a little bit of progress in the trust front, then we have to suck it up, I think, and go for uh, these um, more codified rules-based uh, proposals like a bilateral investment treaty. A bilateral investment treaty, finally getting to the answer of your question, uh, is uh, a treaty that lowers investment barriers for multinationals who want to uh, invest uh, in both countries. It's inherently pro-growth by allowing uh, capital to flow more freely across borders. Uh, China's been an active supporter of bilateral investment treaties, uh, has over 100 of them in place right now, um, more so than any country in the world. The U.S. has also been very uh, uh, active in supporting a bilateral investment treaty. We have over 40 
40 of them in place right now. We were 95% of the way done at the end of the Obama administration, and then Trump immediately took that, along with many other things, off the table. Uh, and uh, what a bilateral investment treaty will do is it not only uh, reduces investment barriers, which is inherently pro-growth, uh, but it allows you to codify a lot of the structural issues that um, have come between the two countries and um, include them as um, side clauses or side issues in the formal agreement. And so this could cover things like forced technology transfer subsidies to state-owned enterprises um, uh, and labor practices, environmental practices, uh, and uh, uh, the like. So it's a, it's a broad, potentially powerful framework. But it's, it, you know, it's, it's, and I would say also, um, it is far preferable to addressing frictions, economic frictions between nations than something like the phase one trade accord that was agreed upon uh, by the Trump administration uh, as the principal strategy to reduce uh, America's trade deficit. The, the phase one trade accord completely failed. Uh, and as I said earlier, the U.S. trade deficit has gotten larger rather than smaller. And, you know, that's a, an example of a zero-sum uh, approach to addressing an economic adversary rather than a pro-growth uh, bilateral investment treaty. The final um, leg of the stool, if you want to call it that, is the, uh, the U.S.-China secretary, which is actually a proposal I am most excited about and one that I have not seen elsewhere. And it recognizes that we really have a dysfunctional way of communicating uh, with China. Example being, you know, we shoot a balloon down, you know, our defense secretary tries to call his counterpart uh, in Beijing and no one answers the phone. And, you know, there's there's no one sitting around to say, you know, what what's going on here? And we, we uh, uh, we trade insults back and forth, or you know, with COVID, um, same type of thing. Uh, you know, we want to fixate on blaming um, a lab leak rather than getting to the heart of um, what caused the disease and what needs to be done to address it and present prevent pandemics uh, in 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 the future. So, I argue uh, for the establishment of a, a an organization that is staffed largely, as you said, um, Kevin, by equal compliments of Chinese uh, and American uh, you know, diplomats, researchers, uh, and other experts located in a neutral venue and one that operates full-time 24-7 with a broad remit to cover all aspects of the relationship from economics and trade to innovation uh, to um, state subsidies to uh, you know, climate, health, cyber, even human rights. Uh, and the secretariat is empowered to produce collaborative policy white papers uh, based on a mutually agreed upon common database, no alternative facts. Uh, it has a convening function to bring experts into um, uh, the process when serious Unexpected problems arise like COVID. Uh, and finally, it has a, uh, a compliance function that monitors um, existing and new agreements uh, with a dispute resolution mechanism should the inevitable frictions arise. And so it's a, basically, it's a proposal for a new architecture of engagement. Right now, the engagement takes place you know, sporadically. You know, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met uh, last November in Bali, so there was a lot of staffing, um, you know, a few weeks before that meeting. But then, you know, uh, the staff went back to their day jobs. I want continuity, uh, permanence, and a far more robust uh, framework of uh, uh, support to this critical um, our relationship. Yeah, I really, um, really liked that part of the the book. Um, and I agree, I haven't, I haven't read it 
uh, about it before. And it, it sort of feels like right now we're relying almost on a kind of informal secretariat. You know, we have people like you, we have people like Susan Shirk, presumably others who have contacts that they've built up over their careers. And there's this kind of informal channel of dialogue, which, if, you know, it's better than nothing. But really what you're talking about is setting up a you know, an organization in a neutral site. I don't know if we're talking... It's just, I suppose it doesn't really matter where. It could be Switzerland. It could be somewhere that both parties agree on. It's permanent, staffed by people, um, and it's recognized by both countries as, hey, this is the place we go um, if we've got a conflict. But, but more than that, it's producing, you know, regular, you know, joint research on how to make the relationship better over time, recognizing that, you know, it's a it's an interdependency, as you say, that's going to be there for, you know, for our our lifetimes and and probably probably beyond. Do you um, when you talk about this idea with people in the U.S. with people in China, what's been the what's been the reception? Well, it's 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 mixed, to be honest with you. Um, I I did talk about it in considerable detail with a number of. Um, of uh, Chinese officials and academics uh, in my recent trip to China, and you know there there is some interest. You know they they would you know tweak this or that, uh, and you know want to make uh, a few suggestions, um, but in in large part they recognize that the lack of engagement and the framework that underpins that engagement is a you know a hugely disconcerting and potentially risky uh, phenomenon. When I attempt to present it in the U.S., especially in to our um, government, whether it's the Congress or uh, the White House, basically there's no interest. I mean, the response is something like, "You got to be kidding!" You know, we do not, we are not interested in uh, a bureaucracy. We know what. The problem is, and we want the Chinese to be uh, more responsive uh, to uh, our perspective. And so uh, I'm really committed to raising this issue in in the United States much more than has been the case thus far. I, I definitely feel that we play just as an important a role in China in leading to this dysfunctional relationship, and it's our obligation to uh, really commit to a, a different approach to managing the relationship. And, you know, if you don't like the secretary, give me a better idea. I'm happy. I'm happy to listen to it. Well, I, um, you say in the book that, you know, the goal is to say, Hey, this is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And it, you know, basically deserves an organization that, you know, is commensurate with that let's elevate the relationship to the status it deserves um i think is what you say so you know i uh, i appreciate you you writing the book and and trying to be constructive at the end and i hope you continue to do you know use your contacts and influence to move it forward thanks for uh, taking the time to to join us today um uh, really appreciate it like i said it's really an honor to have a chance to speak with you and uh i wish you all the best Stephen. thanks very much kevin thank you for giving me the opportunity to, um, you know, express my uh, point of view and just underscore the, the, the bottom line that you just alluded to. Um, this is a relationship that is now uh, at a dangerous fork in the road, and we can't afford to let it uh, continue to deteriorate. Well, thank you. That's a, It's an important message, and I'm glad we have a chance to, to get it out there. Um, so with that, I'm going to um, pass it back over to Niels. Thank you very much, Stephen and Kevin, for a really important conversation about a couple of topics that we are all faced with today, namely, one, the false narratives that we are all exposed to through this news-driven world that we live in, and of course also the most important geopolitical relationship uh, that we see today, namely between U.S. and China. I really enjoyed Stephen's hard-hitting analysis of the current conflict between the U.S. and China and the dangers of these false narratives and the rhetoric that have led to a trade war, a tech war, and a new cold war. He really does stress the 
importance of a more credible assessment of the risks both nations face. And I like his idea of a new roadmap to restore a mutual beneficial relationship built on a higher level of trust and better communication between the two countries through, say, a US-China secretariat, especially, of course, if it's located in my country of Switzerland. That is it for today. Make sure you go and follow Stevens and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.